Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Hello there. Today I am chuffed to be joined by a highly respected expert vocal coach, creator of Vocal Coach Training Academy Teach Voice and one half of the Naked Vocalist, Mr. Chris Johnson. How are you, Chris? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. You've been quite a busy bee over the last couple of years, um, creating courses and, as we mentioned just there, your academy. Um, And I've had the pleasure of attending quite a few of your courses that you've conducted over the last um, few years. uh, And they've included your vocal assessments, articulation and strengthening and connecting the vocal registers. And I thought that this latter one would be something really fun to delve into today. Um, So my first question is, was there something specific that you were seeing in the vocal coaching community that called for a course dedicated to vocal registers? Yes. Yeah, I think there was. And, and um, it's a culmination of a lot of time, obviously, in the coaching room, a lot of time working through my own training right from the, the very beginning, even when I wasn't a teacher, you know, trying to make sense of registers um, as a singer. Um, and how they all kind of work. So yeah, going through what would be, you know, I guess getting on for sort of 15 years of, of information going in my head. Um, and, and also the, the great thing about the Naked Vocalist podcast, which is what you mentioned before, was the amount of views that I could be exposed to, right? Over the, we've been doing it a long time now. So I would have listened to some very different perspectives on registers, very different of people who all get amazing results, right? And also um, provide evidence for what they do. And some of it's clinical, like you know, evidence in the studio, some of it's scientific evidence and mixture of the two. And looking at all of that kind of come out, come out my way over the last few years, I was starting to try and make sense of like, oh, hang on. So, you know, I value my training, my initial training in, in teaching. It was incredible for me. And I, st- I still connect with a lot of those guys. Um, but I think most pedagogues, it's fair to say, um, will have changed their ideas over time on what they believe things are as, as more evidence comes out or more people start to delve into that. And so it's inevitable that the way you start with a lot of the way you think about stuff, it will morph and change. Some things that you thought were one way sort of turn out to be another and shape the way that you coach into a different way that's more effective, right? Uh, so it has it had a practical knock-on effect for me. Um, so when I take into account those things, it just stimulated me to go for quite a long time to go into a lot of what would be old pedagogy. So stuff that's been around for hundreds of years, stuff that was influenced by old pedagogy, but might have been brought into a scientific context which is like a lot of the stuff that's through sort of the 50s, the 60s, and, you know, up until, I guess, the, sort of the 90s, right? A lot of um, pedagogues about then. Um, and then looking at very current research and very new methods and, and ways of thinking and how that all marries together, where the discrepancies are, um, but, but more importantly, where the useful similarities are, so that really we can get 
as as clear a view as I can, I guess, manage from that information um, for teachers to use. And when I looked at all that information together, you know, it would change a few beliefs, a few standard definitions, a few ways that teachers tend to think wholesale, they would have to change sometimes. And so when, when you see enough of that happen, you're like, oh, hang on. I think we really need to start disseminating information out to the teaching community to say, hey, yes, those terms or those ways of doing things, they're close, but they have holes in them. So let's start doing training um, around what those holes might be and how we fill them in, become more effective. And that's that tends to be how I usually am motivated to create a course. And registers, of course, is absolutely full of discrepancies. We can't know anything <laughs> really for sure. So a lot of it is is speculation. So when, when all you have is speculation and not downright hard evidence, you just have to look for the best patterns that emerge from a from a big big period of time. So that's kind of what I did. Mm. And before I kind of move on to the next thing into registers, I'd be really interested to hear kind of because that sounds like a lot of CPD kind of collecting all of your research and and deciphering what it all means and translating it and comparing it. So how do you go about doing that? Is have you got a set day? Do you are you like Wednesday nights? I'm in my cave and I'm doing my research. How do you fit that into your schedule? Because I know that um, a lot of teachers really want to do that extra research, but it's fitting it into the schedule. So how do you go about making sure you've got time for that? Well, it was lucky in the beginning because I used to just get on a train for three hours a day. So that was uh, that was quite useful. That was pre-COVID. Right? So I would, I would uh, spend time doing certain admin stuff like we do. We'll reply to the emails. Um, but I will absolutely have either the book or the saved research papers that I feel like I need to um, take in. And I think that's the beauty of any project that is either bestowed on you or you bestow on yourself is that it will increase your time spent on a particular subject. So if I would recommend anything to anybody who has n- who doesn't have enough time, is to put yourself under pressure and book a workshop, <laughs> right? Just do it because I'll tell you what, you will find that time. Uh, uh, and it, I, I, thank, I thank everybody for that. And actually one of the, one of the first people to do that for me um, when I was a much younger teacher, but was, you know, kind of identified, you appear to be interested in this. Um, why don't you do this presentation? And of course I went, yep, yeah, cool. Yep. Yeah, fine. Ran away and then filled my pants pretty much about the whole thing. Um, and so I spent the next six weeks just kind of like, you know, making sure that this was the most perfect workshop. I had every angle covered. I read everything under the sun. Um, yes, it's a bit of pressure, but my God, did it teach me a lot from doing that? Then I gave the presentation and realized they didn't need to know all that stuff. Keep it simple, Chris. Uh, <laughs> so so you, you learn about that. But nevertheless, I can't undo all of the things that I found out. Mm. about that subject and how that might then after the workshop's over go, actually, that's changed my view on something. Um, Or that's made me think, actually, I don't know enough about that. I'm going to now, after this workshop, I'm probably going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole of that thing that I realized I don't know enough about. Uh, So yeah, I think that's how I find the time. I generally put myself under the pressure of having to find it. Mm. And then you realise, oh, I don't really need to watch Love Island reruns. 
<laughs> I do have the yeah. time. <laughs> no, totally. There's so there's so much. Yeah, there's 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 procrastination. There's social media. Um, oh God, there's even emails you just don't even need to just type out. Just say yeah, yeah. yes, send. <laughs> Yeah. And proofreading afterwards. I'm like, right, how did that come across? Like tone, what does that I think, my goodness, half an hour's passed. Move on. Yeah, and all I've achieved is a smiley wink face. Uh just to make sure they know I'm joking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so delving into registers then, let's kind of just go well, I say basic, it might not be basic at all. What actually is a vocal register? What do we constitute as being a vocal register when we sing or when we speak. Well, you've opened a bl- bloody can of worms, haven't you? Well, with that one. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> there will be a social media tirade, I imagine. Uh, no, well, because we, well, um, the big discussion at the moment is that, you know, is, is uh, and it's understandable, but it's not always easy to learn this way, is, is that registers are like dependent on a lot of factors. Um, so we can't talk about registers unless we talk about how they interact with air, air pressure, air flow from the lungs, of course, and how then how the lungs deliver that. Um, and then how acoustics, so the, the resonances that happen in the throat and mouth, and even underneath the vocal folds, there are still resonances that affect things. Um, so what, we can't talk about it in isolation from those because they kind of all support each other. And a combinations of how they all work equate to the nuances of register, right? However, um, when it comes to learning them, you kind of have to learn them in parts and pieces, really. Um, And so if we were to take what would be the scientific register, um, as is normally written about in like papers and stuff like that, it would be on a very basic sense, it'd be which layer of the vocal folds is vibrating Mm -hmm. in that given sound, Right. And so in the low pitches, um, the vocal folds are made up of three, three layers. So the, the deepest layer is a muscular layer. Um, the TA, the thyroid, if anybody's familiar with it, or the kind of the vocalis is the outer part. So deep down, you have the muscle and the muscle as a material, it's, it's stiffer, it's bigger. It's a bulky part of the vocal folds. So whenever we would think of that as a string, you know, a big, thick string, We'd associate it with being able to vibrate at lower pitches, be a lower pitch string. So when we're in the lower parts of our voice and the vocal and the airflow kind of pushes through our vocal folds and makes them kind of open and close and creates that vibration, um, the vocal folds um, are under tension at that point. And it's, it's in the lower pitches that the muscle layer dictates the vibration. It sustains the vibration and that's, what gives us our chest voice is what most people would say to that. But when you get past the kind of cracky bit into falsetto, the vocal folds have stretched out quite a bit by then. That's how they add tension and raise pitch as they have to stretch out. And they stretch out enough that in order for them to stretch out the muscle layer, which when it contracts, when it's on, it tends to make the vocal fold shorter and fatter. So, by definition, really, if we're going to be able to get to falsetto, we have to let the vocal folds lengthen. So that muscle layer has to stop kind of engaging. It has to kind of pull away and it has to allow for the vocal folds to lengthen, which lets the ligament layer, which is the next layer out, 
vibrate and become under tension. And that's what we would associate with falsetto. And uh, yes, so when the vocal folds, they lengthen out, they give way to the vibration of a different layer um, as they stretch out. That is the ligament. So deepest layer is muscle. Next outermost layer will be the ligament. And the ligament is much more stretchy. It's not as dense as the muscle. It's not as stiff. It's not as bulky. So because it's quite stretchy, it can facilitate a lot more of the higher pitches and the stretches into the higher range. So if we were to boil like those registers down into the most basic of vibrations, the basic of which layer is vibrating, then we would be left with chest, modal voice, falsetto, chest, muscle layer, vibrating, falsetto, ligament. And then they can, they can obviously interact in, in different ways, which is where some of the, the, the more nuanced of registers and situations on the vocal folds can happen in combination with the other things, like I said, with air and resonance. Mm. So with, with those two uh, registers there, chest and falsetto, let's start with chest. Kind of what are we seeing or wanting to see in a singer when we're looking at functional chest, which is, is the area that you work in, isn't it? It's functional training. So regardless of style, um, that we have a chest voice foundation that we can access. So what would we be looking for to know tick box? Yes, that's working functionally. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, in terms of tonal, so that the, what's quite nice about um, a, a, a research paper called Glottal Configurations, and it's by Christian Herps and Jan Svetch. Um, and they are often together doing research. And what they do is they talk about the register that I spoke about, which is what part of the layer is vibrating? So if it could be muscle or ligament. Um, and then on top of that, how closed or adducted are the vocal folds? Are they closed, which would be a non-breathy sound? Or are they slightly open to a degree, which would add more of a breathy component to it? So then you can have, you can have chest and falsetto, but both of those could be adducted, less breathy or not breathy and abducted, so more breathy. So when we look at the functional registers, really what we're looking at is uh, in chest voice, yes, the muscle layer would be vibrating and it would be non-breathy, right? That's the functional chest. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the one that we use in functional training to work on something that would be like a dynamic level. And a functional chest, if you're in it, you know, like I'm, I'm speaking in it right now, it's this kind of this place. And as you get for, for most singers, as you get below F3 in a voice, it's almost impossible to deny that the only thing kind of uh, uh, contributing to your voice is going to be like your functional chest voice, right? As you get above that, you can actually be quite heady, that low, but it's possible. Um, so that's kind of where it kind of lives. So when you get below that F3, again, like whichever voice type or um, what, you know, male, female, whatever, everything in between, you get below that F and it's, it's kind of hard to deny. So if you start down there, that's where you're going to be able to train it initially. But a functional chest, as you get higher, which I think is one of the, um, the things that I was led to with old school training and new school thinking, was that when you get higher in a functional chest, it does get louder and louder and louder up to the point of like, you know, lots of people about F, F sharp, maybe G, 
it starts to get so loud and then it will, will probably break. And that's fine. That's normal. Uh, now, that was discouraged a lot when I was training to be a singer, right? Because it's not what makes you be able to cross over the break effectively, that you have to trade off some of that energy and intensity um, so that the vocal folds can start to lengthen effectively gradually um, to start to cover over that break. So that so I felt like the training that was happening in the world was focusing a little bit too much on that, mm. on creating a transition straight away. But the trade-off you do with that is that often makes voices that um, uh, means that when you go towards the middle of the voice and, and uh, the break, that the intensity actually stays the same. And that's fine, I think, for creating a kind of mixed register and, and, a, and erasing the break. But if we don't practice functional chess, where it gets louder and louder and louder as you go up, we will affect our ability to be dynamic in the long run. We do need to know how to be maximum intensity. Mm. And maximum intensity doesn't always travel all the way up. And that, again, that's completely normal. And it should be part of someone's training. Uh, because when it comes to um, working on the nuances of registers, if you have explored the fully thickest fold settings and the completely thinnest, breathiest settings to their nth degree, despite people saying that's unhealthy and that's unhealthy, they're not unhealthy unless you do them 24-7. Mm. They are part of your functional instrument actually, and they should be explored because if you've got those, uh, those extremes, you're going to have a much bigger range of sounds to move in between when it comes to creating things like different types of mix registers or, or different intensities in the middle of your voice. So that's mm -hmm. why that's kind of what functional chess means to me. And one of the most important things is that intensity curve as you go up. Mm. And with falsetto, I'm guessing that's kind of the the opposite in in terms of being able to be um, hootier, lighter, and bring that down past the point of where you would usually bring it down in your singing. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Again, again, it's another thing that um, most people are very familiar actually with going up into up in their chest voice and it getting a bit loud and boomy. So lots of people experience that, right? Everyone used to call it like pulled chest right in the beginning. Um, but not a lot of people are very familiar with staying in falsetto past the point of switching back in. And mm. it's quite perturbing for a lot of people, but it is very, very valuable because as I said to you earlier, is that above sort of F3, which is very, very low really for considering falsetto, above F3 can all potentially be in, in a different kind of configuration. And the way that that ligament layer, which is what we're in in falsetto, when the vocal folds have been lengthened out and the ligament layer is vibrating, you the vocal folds can gradually shorten, but the ligament still vibrates and that muscle layer doesn't get involved. You can kind of keep it away because you're choosing to. It's almost like a, it's like you're developing the neurological connection to that muscle, probably the CT muscle, if anybody's interested, but to the muscle that maintains the length of the vocal folds mm. um, associated to your falsetto, you're, you're dialing in your neurological connection to that. The more you go in falsetto below the break point, because if you can do it without chaotic changes, it means you have ultimate connection to that function of your voice. Getting back to the word function. 
And as you do that, um, your brain will understand it. You'll understand the sensations of it. You'll understand at what intensity that will work. You can't do it loudly. As you come down, it's going to get softer and softer and softer and softer and softer until there's a point, yes, maybe down somewhere, A, G or F, it, you're going to start to feel it just suddenly pick up that weight just a little bit um, where you kind of go, yes, it's undeniably chest right now. Mm. And then if you can do that, much like the, the high intensity of chest, um, exploring that forte um, is the thick part. This is the thin part. Then with that connection to both of those things, you can find configurations that involve both of those functions where they both are contributing to the morphology of the vocal folds mm. and creating a lot of those nuances in between. Mm. And it's it's uh, it's funny in in falsetto when you're when you're getting a singer to do that because they go I don't know if you you may have seen this when they go down and they're looking at you like this isn't this can't be right because I'm like oh <laughs> and you can see their face <laughs> yes. like questioning you like are you sure this is what you want me to be doing like yeah that is yeah that's right but it, it, I guess that's their moment of awareness of that particular sensation of that muscle in use um which obviously right. is new to them totally yeah and uh, what's really important for teachers is if you try and do this with somebody um like my my piano is here if, if somebody's like up on an a and it starts flickering around in there some people like drop an octave mm. i can't demonstrate that i'm sorry <laughs> it's just it's just not i just don't know how to how to generate that but some voices they just flip an octave so in the middle of the range there isn't a lot of connection at that moment right the singer does not know how to choose something so it's not going to be that likely they're going to choose much mm. in that part of their voice they'll only probably just go with what comes most naturally, right? Which is probably the really high intensity, maybe a bit shouty, yeah. um, but anything lighter than that comes with absolute chaos. So if, if as a diagnosis or rather an assessment, you bring people down in falsetto past the breaking point and all they experience is chaos, you do have work to do in order to get that person to understand how they stave off chaos, how they get rid of that Um uh, and that will provide them with a lot of options in the future. But then, you know, this is chest and falsetto. We're talking it in, about in terms of range, but we're also talking intensity. So falsetto will know, much like chest, as you get to the top of falsetto, it does get louder and louder and louder. And as you come down, it gets softer and softer and softer. Um, that's the And the same with chest. They both kind of do that towards their upper end. Mm. So if we don't see that in the singing voice, we, we probably are seeing kind of altered states that aren't usual uh, that might cause problems. But if we put that on a single note, all of this becomes relevant when somebody wants to do a crescendo and a diminuendo. Mm. Uh, a de voce is what is normally said, but to get louder and quieter on and keep the notes stable um, is usually quite a strong skill. Mm. And it's a skill that involves registers, which is, again, when I was training, that was news to me. I didn't see volume as a, as a register change. I just saw it as a volume change. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but when you look at it, the way training falsetto functionally and chest functionally, training the adducted or an abducted versions of all of those, 
to the extremes and then into the middle where they cross over, they are going to be what allow you to um, ultimately test your registers, which is to go loud, which will involve, especially if we're in the shared range, let's say it's F something or E. If you do a crescendo and diminuendo on those notes, the louder parts are going to recruit more of the, the chest voice function. Mm. And the quieter parts are going to rock over more into the falsetto type function. Mm. But, th but the adduction would be the same. The level of breathiness is not supposed to change. So that because that's going to be part of it um, and part of the goal, it's going to require that your larynx and all those muscles that create all of those different scenarios are going to have to be very responsive. They're going to have to be awoken and trained and, you know, able to react to your request of intensity, because that's really how you're going to control it. It's going to be mostly via your energy and intensity and obviously a little bit of technical stuff. Mm. So interesting. So interesting. Speaking of chaos, and I apologize ahead of this one. <laughs> okay. Can we open another can of worms and kind of go terminology in terms of, of registers? Because there's, there's so many. Um, you touched on a few earlier with um, modal one, modal, modal two, uh, thick fold, thin fold, speech quality, a hoot, bloody ant and deck, <laughs> whatever you want to call <laughs> yeah. them. Uh, chest voice the Exactly. Um, is there one, in your opinion, which is most accurate or does the terminology not really matter as much as, you know, the, the, the mechanical, physiological um, makeup of them? What, what's your touch on that? Yeah, very interesting question. Um, the simple answer is, and this is, there is a bit of, if I can't beat them, join them, right, sort of situation, but... I'm happy with chest and falsetto. Um, there are other parts of it, like vocal fry um, is, you know, not typically another register, but is distinct from mm -hmm. chest. Um, and then when you bring the falsetto into more adduction or more closure, it tends to be described as more like head voice. Um, and I know, I fully acknowledge that they're descriptive terms based on where they have historically been felt in the body, mm -hmm. even if they're not, produced there. And even if when someone sounds chesty, but doesn't feel much in their chest, does that make them not in chest? No, it doesn't. Um, maybe to them, if they're attached to feeling it in chest, it might mean, oh, I don't feel like I'm in chest, but everyone outside goes, wow, so chesty. Uh, so registers are a perceptive thing, their perception. If you can make someone believe you're in it and you ain't, I don't think there's a problem with that. Um, but the terminology has been around for so long. And I believe, <laughs> sorry if anybody disagrees, and I'm, I'm, ha I'm happy if anybody disagrees. Um, they've been around so long that they're going to perpetuate faster than they can be changed. You know, a bit like a, a virus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I just cannot imagine spending any more time trying to change terminology that probably won't change in the next five generations. Just give up. We just get, look, they're just, they're just rubbish names, but here's the experience. Ignore the name. Tell me what you, your experience is. And fortunately as a coach, um, I can draw their attention to different parts of their instrument mm. in order to discern 
chest voice for themselves, right? And I very rarely, almost never draw attention to the chest. Mm. It's not, it's felt in so many other ways that the chest, you know, feeling it there is just not a thing. Um, it is a thing, but you know, it's not, it's not necessarily a major focus. Um, people that do focus below the larynx tend to lower the larynx, right? So tend to create darker sounds. So to focus on chest, it isn't always relevant um, unless you want that sound. Uh, but there are vibrations that are in the front, for example, they can be along the palate, the way the airflow behaves, how the rib cage often is way different from when you go from chest to falsetto. There's a, there's a big change in how much air wants to leave you. Um, you can play back sounds as well to draw attention to certain tonalities of it. Uh, and then explore the range and go, yes, if you're in the full on chest, it's probably not going to go further than here. So all of those things can help us feel a bit more comfortable as to going, regardless of the name, let's just explore it within its boundaries so we can fully understand it. And I guess that's where being student centered comes into it as well. So if, if somebody comes in and calls it modal one, you'll know what they're referring to and you might use that back to them because that's totally. how they know it. Um, and I'm totally on board for Ant and Deck to be part of that world. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> unless, there, unless there is a big break between them. But I mean, they haven't showed it so far in their career. Unless they do fall out, then you'll probably have to change it. Yeah, they're currently a blend, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> they come as a package, always. And they always win the awards. See, I'm onto something. This analogy goes on forever. Well done. Thank you. It's, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about it and researching it. <laughs> uh, staying on, on topic of terminology, and this is something that you bring up in your, in your registers course and also in your recent newsletter with uh, Teach Voice, which is the uh, concept of TA dominance and CT dominance, which I understand to be the kind of description we've given to a singer who might be chest heavy or um, uh, head heavy but you've explained recently that it might not be totally accurate so what what are we actually looking at there and what would be the most appropriate or accurate way of describing that yeah sure and, and I th I th it's one of those things again that i know i know there's been people um around who have sort of moved away from that terminology in their own sort of practices um but again i i felt like that wasn't making it out into the world um, enough because there are more people use it than than we talk about it. And so TACT dominance is based, basically just pointing towards which which muscle, um, and obviously the, the, there's more complexity in those muscles, but which one of those muscles is more dominant? TA would be chest, CT would be head, voice, or falsetto. Which one is more dominant? And if we hear a chesty sound, and a reminder that chest voice is a perception. It's not reality. It's just you hear it and you interpret it and you go, sounds like chest. So is it chest or is it just what your head wants? Mm. And the, the answer is, you know, a lot of the time it's the second one. Right? It, it doesn't always matter what's vibrating or what's dominant. What matters is what comes out um, and whether that is functional, sustainable and actually appropriate for what you're trying to sing. So that's the one, the downside of it is because it's perception. It means that 
feasibly a, a, a setting could be CT dominant, but everyone hears it as TA dominant, right? So that you kind of go, well, what's, and what does that matter? Well, if you're problem solving, you might notice something that's TA dominant, too much chest, right? And you might steal away from it. You might go TA dominant. That means I need to reduce TA or, or you know, soften off chest. Um, but it might not mean that at all. It might be something to do with adduction, not chest, like closure, not chest. And it might be a CT dominant sound that needs more TA in order to stabilize it. And then it wouldn't need to be so compensatory. So the name of CT and TA almost has the resolution wrapped up in the name, which is a major problem. Uh, because yeah, we can't we can't infer the solution in the title. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I feel like we just need to get away from that because uh, it is such a misconception. And if you and the, the reason why you would really understand why a you can't know what's dominant is because we can't stick needles in larynxes anymore. That stopped in like <laughs> night, yeah. Those buggers in the seventies <laughs> stopped that. <laughs> Those ethical gits, honestly. Yeah. God, what do they think they're doing? Um, plus, you know, could you imagine walking up to like, I don't know, Stevie Wonder saying, can I stick this in your throat? Because <laughs> yeah. we'd really love to know what's going on. Of course he's going to say no, um, unless it's very profitable. Uh, who knows? But uh, but yes, yeah, so we can't know because we can't stick um, needles in. So when you start reading research papers, you suddenly start to realise nobody knows anything. Um, it's 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 only going to be a set of information that we that is is just going to be inferred from a lot of data, but we can't know because of the needles. Um, there's that side of it, and then there's the acoustics. So when you learn about acoustics, um, what kind of parts of the tone are signified as being perceived as chest, not really chest, but heard and interpreted as a chesty sound? Those figments of your voice can be present whether you're in chest or not in chest mm. through other methods through acoustic manipulations i vowel shapes narrowings extra air pressure um, different types of vocal fold closure regardless of the actual register itself mm. what's vibrating so when you look at those and you go yeah yeah that's how people can go or how people can really um, dupe you into believing like, wow, how do they sing in chest all the way up to like G, you know, all the way up to G5. And, you know, it's, it's just a perception. It's, it's, it's not entirely likely that that's happening. It's just an acoustic thing. Mm -hmm. So when you look at those, that's why you kind of look back at CTTA dominance and go, yeah, it's not possible to know. And it's misleading as a, um, as an anatomical resolution, much like chest and head are misleading, but they don't suggest a resolution in their titles, mm. which is why I kind of go, yeah, of the, of the evils, I'll take that one. Mm. And I guess that links quite nicely to the work that you've done with vocal assessments, because you've based that around what are you treating a symptom or a cause, or what are you listening to a product of a lot of other things? Um, and I quite like that explanation. So yeah, that's great. And and going on to the um, the kind of th thing that you just said there about people taking a perceptive chest up to G five, whatever, um, it brings me on to the idea of of mix. And I guess this is a battle that's been fought for quite a while in in the in the field. Um, 
whether it exists, whether it's a register in itself, can the muscles be, you know, blended in that way? So what are your takes on mix and how we train it and what it is? Yeah, totally. <clears throat> and again, mix is very subjective, as all registers are, um, the experience and to listen to them. Um, and so when we look at mix, it's, it could be anything from like, yeah, when falsetto just gets a bit heavier or when chest voice gets a bit lighter uh, or something, you know, it could, could be anything coming from both directions. So yeah, the subjectivity is, is quite strong. Um, and the, one of the theories that's offered out there, which is by um, put forward by Dr. Ingo Tietze is that one misconception is, is yes, that muscle layer that vibrates and that ligament layer that can vibrate they would create or rather be leading in two distinct voice qualities, chest and falsetto. Now, those two layers, they cannot share. They can't both be dominant. One of them has to take over because what's the, the thing about pitches is the vocal folds create the pitch by creating tension. Mm -hmm. So the, the TA can create tension in itself by, by contracting. And then the tension can be added to the ligament by the vocal folds uh, lengthening so we have to kind of almost separate those two as being one of them has to be dominant because it has to dictate what the pitch is so mixing them up is going to make pitch go all over the place it's just not possible mm. um, and that's what the argument is from a lot of people about that right you can't mix registers they cannot blend like that it's not going to work however the the proposal if you like from um Ingo is where the ligament layer, if you like the vocal folds, they can lengthen and we can let the ligament be the one that dictates pitch. All right. It takes over. It's the dominant vibration, but the, the muscle layer can be involved just enough so that it brings a little bit of thickening to the vocal folds. Right? And when the vocal folds kind of thicken like that, they, they have a greater contact area which can create a much um, stronger signal, a much richer sound as they collide. Um, and it also can help air pressure build behind the vocal folds a little bit more, which tends to translate to volume mm -hmm. as well. So you can get that to happen. So you haven't switched the dominant vibration over to the muscle because you haven't contracted it that much. You're still on that ligament. But also if the, if the um, muscle layer is, is contracted just moderately, it's probably malleable enough, soft enough to actually be what's called entrained to the ligament. So if the ligament is vibrating in a dominant way, anything next to it might be tempted to jiggle along with it, right? Which means the TA or the muscle layer hasn't taken over. In fact, it's got on board with the ligament and it can't do that if it's fully pulled away, right? If it's completely inactive and uh, it's not. It's just not kind of offering any of that extra thickness. It won't necessarily do that. If it's too bunched in, it, it will shorten the vocal folds and then you can't have the ligament vibrating anyway. So it's somewhere in between a little bit of thickness and a little bit of like uh, jiggling along with the ligament. So the ligament is still the leader. And that could be a, a theory for what the laryngeal mix register could be. But we can't prove it because, again, back to the ethics, you can't stick a needle in and have a look. Um, so there's that aspect to it. 
but then the other aspect of mix is where actually um when in acoustics if anybody's familiar with acoustics you can still be in what would be a functional chest voice but there comes a point where certain parts of the sound um resonates differently in the vocal tract um different areas kind of add energy to your voice and different areas take it away and there are there are points in the middle of the voice and all over the voice where harmonic energy can suddenly drop out of being boosted which tends to lighten the voice energy a little bit which then makes us feel like oh there's been a register change mm. and i guess in in the entire orb of registers that's true because registers we're saying is a it, it, it's a complete thing it's a it's air flow and pressure it's vocal folds it's acoustics all together but as far as the laryngeal registers it might still be just straight up muscle vibrating so at the voice level it's chest but the acoustics have created a nuance in it that make it sound like chest mix transitional chest upper middle summing you know something whatever but either way there's a there's a notable difference so when we learn it like that that's why we have to learn it in parts and pieces sometimes because we're trying to discern yes what do we think is at the larynx and how do we think the rest of the elements including acoustics are um altering our perception of that sound that eventually will lead us to be able to train them more effectively if we know all of the combinations that could happen mm. it's quite it's, it all sounds like quite complicated choreography in the whole of the system and then you get one part and you think oh no breath pressure is a bit too much or too less or the tongue's doing this and then you think hold on a minute <laughs> i need to just have a break go away a second singer <laughs> and let me re reframe but um it is no it is complicated but i i think really i mean when we talk about it like this it probably it takes on that form um because we're trying to decode it and that that decoding is i mean i've spent a long time doing it so it, in my head it's it's probably a little bit clearer but my god did i just pull my hair out for 10 years you know yeah. uh, reading it all and you know if you don't read french every day you just give it another month and you just look at those words and you go i've seen you before <laughs> what do you mean again uh it's a bit like that so yeah being indoctrinated into it every day which is the beauty of like agreeing on a presentation to deliver mm -hmm. on acoustics uh, you get exposed to this stuff every day and it, then it starts to sink in um but the complexities we have to kind of kind of put them aside and go yeah that's research that's going to be helpful in problem solving but the the recruitment of registers can be wrapped up mm. consolidated into something more simple yeah and that would be where imagery comes in that's where even just intensity you know which is sometimes emotional intensity like my level of excitement will dictate a register uh, my level of excitement will manage my breath probably depending on the type of ex of excitement it will invite vibrato mm. it would shape the vocal tract the tongue it would uh suit different vowels uh and it and it would take care of other, other things in, including posture and the way you carry yourself mm. so yes when we when we look at like functional training sometimes functional training can um narrow into a certain function a little bit more but i'm always wary in the journey of going but i must consolidate that into something more simple otherwise the brain goes oh my god i can't deal with that 
Um, it's too much of a mechanical focus. So yeah, that's 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 kind of where functional registers fit in. Is they serve expression, mm. and then we have to uh, we have to kind of prioritize expression as well as uh, resonance sensations, which are another very, um, I guess, uh, n- the, the resonant sensations and focusing on them doesn't overwhelm us that much. Mm. It's quite easy to focus on those if we know what to do. Mm. And I like that description because, as you said, it it can it can kind of sort out a lot of things at once. It's like a wombo combo party bucket, if you like, getting all sorts in there, and you you get a result for many things with one exercise. And it, it's uh, I've I've used it, and I've really liked the results on myself, and I've seen singers really uh, get uh, excited by the results. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's, you can have a you can sometimes have a small mechanical focus in there. Sometimes you can have like image or like um, emotion, if you like, and a little bit of tongue forward. You know that that again is not an overwhelming thing to do. Yeah, um, it's it's I think that again why why I put a lot together a lot of the training is a lot of instruction is mechanical instruction layered. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in which pe- point there's an overwhelm and then the singer can't progress. So, yeah, that's another another part, I think, of, of how I look and what motivates me to create content. Mm. Yes, amazing. Uh, so I have a game. I don't know <laughs> if you've listened to the uh, podcast with Candy Louise. We did um, a really cool game, may I say so myself, on uh, using colours to create your brand. Cool, oh, cool. What you're thinking. And it was just a fun little thing to kind of go through uh, looking at your appropriate uh, brand colours. So I've come up with a game for you with ju- a shit name just like the one that I did for Candy. <laughs> um, I, I was, I was I... impressed by the name. Oh, thank you. Well, wait to hear this one. Uh, so a lot of a lot of singers, I guess, get a bit confused or they can get a bit, bit stumped at times into thinking... What am I actually hearing? And as we know, registers are perceptual, as you've said and explained really well. Um, so I've kind of come up with a, a situational based uh, game where I'm going to give you a, a scenario uh, of a couple of characters who uh, we get to know them. And uh, I've come up with them, by the way. They're not real people. Uh, and there's a bit in there what they're experiencing in their registers. Uh, and I just want you to kind of give me your first thoughts of how you might respond to this particular scenario. So actually there's not really any way to win. <laughs> so uh, and, and no prize. And and no prize. Oh, so well. bye. <laughs> Don't think anyone will be playing this in the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get it commissioned. No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> um, but the name is Sonari Who Knows. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> you should work. I reckon you should work for the Sun newspaper doing headlines. I don't know if that's an insult or a. <laughs> it would make of it what you will. Right. Well. <laughs> no. Fair enough. That's how you want to start the bloody game. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to win anyway. It's worth an insult. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here comes the first one. Twenty-year-old Cindy Simons is a musical theatre undergraduate who, in her spare time, enjoys bike riding and collecting stamps. Cindy is often referred to as the belter, but her singing teacher often notes a breathy press when she's singing in her lower range. So, with Cindy both breathy and pressed. And this was something that came up in the course that I was on 
um, with, when you were presenting your registers. Um, breathy Press, how can you be both? <laughs> yes. How can we help? Um, and what is that? <laughs> yeah, squeezed and breathy at the same time. Again, another, another bonkers thing, right? But I think there's two sides to this. Um, is if we were to look at like just the functional side, well, how can you be breathy and pressed at the same time? It's it's because well the the muscle that we were talking about earlier, the muscle layer, um, which we associate when we're in chest voice, and it thickens and shortens the vocal folds. There's videos that I can't share with you unfortunately because they're copywritten and um, were shared to me by someone who said please don't share them, <laughs> but. <laughs> If if uh, um, if my hands, if the full length of my hands from the tips of my fingers down to the palms, if they were just together like in a clap, right? Um, let's say the t tip of my fingers are the front of the larynx and where my thumbs and, and the heels are is the back. The thing about um, adduction is when the TA is highly activated, when we're in a very chesty sound, mm. It adducts basically the front two thirds, roughly, of the vocal folds, right? Which means you can have incredibly thick vocal folds that are incredibly stiff because the muscle layer is like, right? So, what you get is stiffness, and that's relevant in a minute. But what you'll get, if it's possible that at the back of the larynx, there are different muscles that close the back of the larynx, right? So, you can have a very chesty sound with a lot of that TA but you can have a gap at the back that lets through noise, which is where you get that pressed breathy. And the reason why, well, it, it, it's even more tricky sometimes is because not just because there's breathiness in there, but there's a high level of TA activity, mm. which means that because, because the TA is very active, it's, it's um, uh, really contracted as a muscle, it's going to need to vibrate to give you any pitch or sound right and because it's so stiff your breath pressure will have to really wallop it to get it to vibrate so what you get is you'll get a you'll get leaking from the back of the larynx being open mm. so that loses air right but you'll also have to use rather a lot of pushing in order to vibrate such a stiff ta mm -hmm. Right. So you so it tends to use a lot of energy and become, I guess, quite um, inefficient, very inefficient, in fact, as a way of voicing. And so that can be what what is functionally happening there. So we kind of need to trade off, you know, if one wanted to, like, say, clear up the chest voice. And that was really what the singer wanted. Then we would have to trade off some of that chesty activity mm. for closure instead which is where things like ng become highly valuable mm -hmm. um uh, like mosquito sounds they're so quiet that they're not going to need a very thick ta they're not going to need a lot of chest they're going to need like a much thinner fold kind of setting and what they need is vocal fold closure at the back mm. so they train a different thing um and that would be kind of like a trade-off if you like you're trading off the types of closure the ta for the other back of the larynx that's closing. Mm. Um, but sometimes I think when people belt, like a lot of really belter, belter singers often like say Bruno Mars, like Bruno Mars's lower voice is, is got a little bit of breathiness in there. Not saying it's a problem. I'm just saying that um, the body tends to get ready for the activities that it's going to do more, most often. 
And if somebody is belting rather a lot of the time, or that's mainly the vocal style, you know, the voice is probably going to sit in a place where it's most or closest to that setting. Mm. So often um, the bottom voice becoming a little bit light, maybe there's a little bit of airiness in it. It, it can be a product of just singing high rather a lot. Right. You know, um, mm. which I'm not saying I'm not saying it's a problem, but so, sometimes what we see is some singers are fine with it. Other singers uh, tend to find that that might get out of control over time or across the course of 20 years. Sometimes um, it becomes something that, you know, adds an inefficiency to their voice that they might need to address. But the jury's out on whether it, it you know, it's like must solve it. It's a really bad thing. Mm. It might just be a product of the style. Um, and maybe you do acknowledge it a little bit in voice training, um, uh, but not treat it as anything too serious, depending mm. on the severity of it, you know. Mm. And and with the, the the closure there, you mentioned the two thirds um, and then the, the third at the back. And I remember you also touched upon this in your VIP presentation. Um, I think it was last year, all the years have merged into one since yeah. the virus. Since COVID, yeah. Yeah. Um, are we, is that what we, the, the kind of geeky um, terminology is being membranous adduction and the cartilaginous adduction? That's right. Yeah. And that's again, like, a, I know it's used in other places, but um, one of the main papers is the paper I mentioned earlier called Glottal Configurations right. uh, by Herps and Spech. Um, they mentioned membranous and cartilaginous. Yes. So mega nerds will be like membranous is like when the TA adducts the vocal folds Yeah, um, and the and you get like that kind of adduction that's on the two thirds and cartilaginous is when the muscles that coordinate at the back, which is like the LCA, the IA, and you know, there's others back there that are going to obviously, obviously going to coordinate that whole area, but that those muscles are responsible for the cartilaginous and arguably for us to kind of um, cover up our break towards the middle of the voice. Again, there's going to be a trade-off, Mm. Um, towards the cartilaginous adduction mm. as as the vocal folds they if in order for you to get high they have to stretch so the t the ta has to stop thickening mm. has to start letting go so if you're going to keep some of that perception of chest in the sound but you can't adduct with the membranous part the, the mm. ta you'd have to adduct adduct differently with the cartilaginous part at the back you'd have to compensate for that and then bolster that with things like uh, um, the acoustic signal. How can you bring out those with the vowel mm. and support that with um, how the breathing and the body is working? And would you say that the, the popular sob quality would be a good one there because it will give you closure, but not something that is pressed, but it will give you that full closure along the whole line? Um, sob can do. I mean, I see sob a little bit looser on the back of the larynx, but more right. like in terms of cry, mm -hmm. you know, you could lump those into crying, couldn't you, essentially? Uh, and then the interpretation between what's sobbing, what's whining, what that person's cry is. Every, you know, you might be an ugly crier. Who knows? Mm. Uh, you might be a pretty one. Oh, it always reminds me of bridesmaids. No, I'm, no, I'm not. Uh, no, you're an ugly crier. No, 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 I'm not. <laughs> I love that scene so much. Uh, but um, uh, yes, is that sob tends to go towards quite, it's not very highly adducted, but it is quite thick. Right. Quite thick. So it's excellent for um, 
the functional chest on a softer side going up towards the middle voice, but tends to be the other types of cry like whining mm. and wailing, for example, they tend to facilitate a little bit more and the baby cry. They tend to facilitate what would be much more taut long vocal folds with a high cartilaginous closure, mm. uh, which is why they are usually used to bolster into falsetto to make it sound like it's chest voice. When functionally underneath, under the hood, it might not be. Mm. Okay, great. Well, one point to you. Thank you. I'll, I'll have my, I'll have a, I'll have a chocolate coin. Okay, you you do that. that they're on my shelf, and I need an excuse to eat them. Do uh, I? I don't well, think there you I go. Do. Yeah. Now, don't tell me I didn't get you a prize. I gave you permission. <laughs> that is prize enough. <laughs> um, so, last one in the game. I know it's been a brilliant, a, a brilliant game for us to play with only two questions. Um, so, thirty-year-old uh, Derek Dobbins is a gigging professional who dabbles on the rock scene. In his spare time, he enjoys glass blowing and taxidermy, and he tends to come across difficulty when singing in a head voice with clarity and finds it lacks a boosted tone. So with that, uh, I guess a, a, a falsetto that isn't um, adducted, a weaker head voice, if you like. And I feel like you may have answered it just there anyway with the kind of whiny, kind of cryy sort of sounds. Yes, yeah. Um, it, well, maybe. I mean, um, the, the, the whiny, criny, cry sounds there an option for um, developing falsetto. Mm -hmm. um, but as we spoke earlier, you know, we, we spoke about what constitutes like a functional chest and a functional falsetto. And some people um, can achieve falsetto as a broad voice quality. Um, however, when you get to the upper end of it, you might find that. Um, and when I say the upper end of falsetto, like I, I don't test that kind of very breathy, straight up functional falsetto much past B4 or C5. Mm -hmm. After that, it has to be stronger and more adducted and it sort of takes on a new meaning really. Um, so below that C5 is when it's really that kind of fluty, typical Robin Thick style flute, right? Mm. Um so that's what that's how I see it. So what I would do, I would really be looking at the functional falsetto first. Yes, he can achieve it, but does it flatten in the top sort of three notes towards B? That's very common in guys, especially where you go up to the top and yes, they can get there, but every note is just that little bit flat, suggesting that something in there is not flexible and could or just needs time to be flexible. Mm. Um, sometimes when they come down, they might experience that chaotic kind of flicker between two registers towards the middle, uh, in which case, yes, I would, I would love to spend time in the functional falsetto to make sure it's got the expected outcomes. Does it increase in intensity as it goes up and does it decrease as it comes down? Um, does it flicker around E or does it flicker around B or can they go all the way down to almost like A or G before it starts to become... That chest. I'll be testing all of that stuff, as well as the general tonality of it. Does it have that flute? Sometimes it's and sometimes it's got a little squeeze in it somewhere. So I'll be I'll be trying to check that out. And if all that is kind of rocking well and good, you can test all that out in about two minutes. Um, and other parts of the voice seem like you know they're kind of functional. Then I guess we are like um, ready to explore the development. So the whiny sounds would be great. I, I do like creaks um, as they, if they're not like vocal fry, uh, which is the very deep ones, 
they can have a high pitch. They tend to like, yeah, lengthen the vocal folds a bit more. So we're not crazy chesty, but they do adduct the back of the vocal folds. So they're great if you use them in small amounts um, to work into um, the higher range, along with things like high tongues, like NGs are excellent, NGs into vowels. Um, so creaky NG into an open vowel is an excellent exercise, I find, to come from the top down yeah. and start to develop that falsetto, um, maybe even an E vowel. And that's where I would go with that person. Mm. Great. Well, you can have another chocolate coin. Thank you very much. What do you think about taxidermy, by the way? Well, you know, as long as they were dead already, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't like any harm to come to animals. But um, oh, wasn't there a wasn't there an Instagram page called Bad Taxidermy? I um, mean, it freaks me out. So <laughs> I mean, it is funny. It is funny, uh, and I remember the the first time I met my wife, uh, she just got back from Dublin. And apparently there's a taxidermy mu museum there. Oh, no, thanks. So you're, like, like what you do, you get to, apparently this is the way it goes. You get to Dublin, you drink too much Guinness straight away. Uh, you wake up with a stomach full of iron <laughs> next morning, <laughs> feeling like crap. And then you go around hungover to probably the Guinness museum again. Um, <laughs> or, or she went to the taxidermy museum. So I think the combination of like lots of dead animals looking weird uh, and the hangover of Guinness, um, she is forever freaked out by taxidermy now. <laughs> okay, so your cat Drew is not is Drew, right? Is yeah, he, you know, we'll probably bury him in the garden <laughs> yeah, or something. Oh. I, I don't know about that. No, <laughs> I think your wife would uh, have the guts for garters. <laughs> oh, um, so our listeners are probably would love to kind of know what your reading list is and you've um, mentioned uh, Herps and Svetch there. Uh, if anyone wants to follow in your reading footsteps, where would be kind of your, uh, where would be your tips? Who would you say to check out? Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to stomach, but there's two books by Ingo Tietze. They're also really, they're quite expensive because they don't make many of them. I think that's, you know, always the way with what, makes things expensive. Um, so principles of voice production, there's loads of it that will make you cry. Question the meaning of life and whether that all there is to it. Yes. Yeah. But I tell you what, there's a couple of chapters when, you know, when you first start, you can read a couple there's one on registration. There's one on vocal economy. There's one on generating intensity and the mechanisms behind it. There is readable stuff in there. Right. Um, and also vocology, um, is the other book by him himself and Kitty Verdolini. Um, but when it comes to really good um, uh, register um, papers and such, um, there's not that much available that isn't piecemeal. That's online. Um, so the Natalie Heinrich stuff is, is where M1, M2, M3, all that stuff come from. Um, they're worth reading, although I, I imagine they're undergoing change. Um, Herbst and Svetch, they just recently did a podcast with Nats, um, which is the National Association of the Teachers of Singing.org, I think. Um, but look them up because they have a very cheap journal. I think it's £50 a year, um, but they uh, post those Nats chats on YouTube. They're free. So you can go and see those two guys speak about registers um on youtube if you search just search nats snake pit and you will see them both 
talking on that. And also you'll probably find uh, it, it's called Snake Pit because Christian Herbst did an amazing article, two parts, called The Snake Pit of Vocal Pedagogy, which is registers. It's why uh, such a hell of a thing. And that's also another very good um, article that explores uh, a lot of registers, including perception. Mm. Great. Thank you for that. Um, and how can people get in touch with you and find out more about what you're doing? And have you got anything coming up that you'd like to tell us about? Yes, I'd love to. Um, I, uh, I mean, I do, I coach um, privately, which is part of what I do. That's at chrisjohnsonvocalcoach.com. Um, but what I'm doing a lot at the moment is, is all of that stuff that I've done over the past 10 years is going into um, uh, coaching programs for teachers who um aren't beginners they've been around for a while and they're looking to kind of take their skills into something where where there's a lot of more evidence and there's more a, a deeper technical focus um, on functional training so i'm doing that via the website teachvoice.com which where you can go on you can read a little bit about what i'm doing but also if you want to talk to me about um, whether that course would be for you you could on there you can book a consultation call um, because uh, in January on the 17th, I'm doing my first version of that course, um, currently with 20 teachers, but um, but it's going to be a course that kind of rolls on and on. So it's not going to be in necessarily in future in cohorts. It's going to be as you come on, you just start whenever you want, uh, which is partly supported one-to-one -one by myself. So that's what's coming on January the 17th. But yes, teachvoice.com is where that lives. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been a, a corker of a chat. Thank you so much for giving up your time. I really appreciate it. And you're free to go and eat your chocolate coins. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Looking to expand your vocal knowledge and add to your teacher toolbox? Then you're in the right place. BAST are here to guide you with our membership, a growing virtual library packed with educational videos spanning a whole host of voice teacher topics. It's just £1 for the first two weeks and £6 each month after that. Now that's what I call a bargain. To join, just head to our website www.basttraining.com.